Today we're looking uh, at the events that certainly followed the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as we have uh, read some weeks ago and looked at some weeks ago. The final hours of Jesus' life, of the final day of his life, and the culmination of his earthly ministry, which the Gospel of John has been pointing to from the very beginning. So we're going to be looking at verses 17 to the end of the chapter. This is according to my schedule of... uh, of having us be able to preach and to learn uh, about the resurrection and proclaim that and rejoice in that next week because it's Easter. Uh, that schedule I've had preaching going through this. This should be about three sermons. So uh, it, uh, I'm going to be giving you a kind of a, hopefully a pair of uh, lenses or a sort of a scan of these of the rest of this chapter from John's perspective, to be able to see where John is taking us, which is different uh, than uh, where if we would be reading the other Gospels, John writes in a unique way for a unique purpose. Uh, his uh, writing of this it comes uh, many years after the Gospels have been written, the other Gospels have been written, so there is an understanding and an assumption that we've already read the other synoptic Gospels, that you have an understanding about the details. Uh, so John doesn't give us all of the same details, but actually gives us some unique perspectives because of why he's writing this. And remember, so he's a witness, and he wants us all to be witnesses. And the writing of this is a, is a, a testimony and a witness to proclaim who Jesus is. Um, as, and we have to remember who he is, as the pro- prologue says, he is the one who's created everything around us. The one whom we are talking about today who is being mistreated and beaten up and killed is really the God of all creation. Uh, he is the king of the universe. Uh, and to try to understand that, John puts it out in the very beginning of understanding that, you know, this is who Jesus is very God, very God, very man, very man, fully man, um, that he came and, and was received and came and was hated. Um, he uh, is the light. And remember, we talked about, and if you go back and read that, it says that the darkness did not overcome the light. It's trying like heck <laughs> to try to overcome Jesus. Uh, we are seeing all the forces of darkness trying to snuff Jesus out. That's why John puts in the very beginning, it, 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 the darkness does not snuff it out. But boy, doesn't it, if you read this without a perspective of understanding who Jesus is, you're actually thinking that the propane in Jesus' tank is running out and the flame's going to go out. That is actually someone's going to choke him to death. Somebody's going to take all the oxygen out of the room and the, and the light of who Jesus is is going to die. And, and remember, this is, even though we have all of this and they were with Jesus, the followers of Jesus, no matter how much they said they believed, actually felt, actually felt, as we read about these four women today, actually felt that, that it had all just died. And so we have to put ourselves in that perspective. We're looking back this and going, Yahoo, great, but how terrible this 
as we t- I said, used last week the term of this train wreck of a life of these last few hours of Jesus as looking at the perspective of all of the um, terrible things that are taking place in Jesus' life. And uh, as I used the term last week, the, the doctrine of concurrency, this doctrine of, of flowing together, the word con meaning, you know, chili con carne, right? Uh, with or together with meat, right? Chili with meat. So you're looking at together with, and so we see the word concurrent, meaning that everything that we're reading about is in God's hands, is under God's control, is flowing all together to accomplish everything that God wants. But boy, you and I know that sometimes we scratch our head and wonder if somebody didn't open up a valve somewhere that God has no idea what's going on. But as we'll see here, based upon how John portrays that for us, it's he is not a pawn he's the player he's the he's the master of ceremonies he's the one who's written the book he's the one who is in control of everyone and everything which brings us comfort but realizes that the great lengths that god allows things to take place in people's lives to accomplish his will is a daunting thing and is a trusting thing that we have to trust does god knows what he's doing do is god good God is great, God is good. Simple little childlike prayer, major theological statement. <laughs> God being great and God being good. If he's neither one of those things, we're, we're in serious trouble. So, chapter 19 of Gospel of John, verse 17, actually 16b. So they took Jesus. Now again, I hate to, I know I should read the scriptures all together, but I kind of want to just to let you know that there are no lost phrases okay all these little pithy statements these little phrases that john puts in there have a lot of meaning verse 16 so he delivered them over to be crucified and so they took jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, which in Latin is called Calvary. There they crucified him with two others, one on the either side, and Jesus between them. Another statement. Pilate also wrote the, an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and was written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather that this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, oh, soldier also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots for, uh, for it to see who it shall be, who, who, whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots, which is taken from Psalm 22. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, his aunt, uh, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, 
Behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, who is John, the writer, Behold your mother, and from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the, the, legs of the first and of the other who had been crucif crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now John gives us his witness here. He, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe, because he was standing there. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly feared for the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds in weight. 75 pounds. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as a burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask you to again be glorified just by the mere fact we are reading your word. Just by us Reading it together, Lord, you are glorified because this is your word. This is your very words breathed out to us by your apostles, by your followers. These are the words that you want us to read here in Boston Spa today. These are the words that you want us to read throughout our entire life. These are the words in this book, not only John, but this entire book called Holy Scripture, that you desire us to read, to understand, to digest, to live by, because as Moses said, these are not just idle words, these are the words of your life. And so, Father, I pray that as we stand here today and give testimony that these are the words of our life, that, Father, forgive us when we act differently. Forgive us when we decide what to observe and not to observe, when we decide what to follow and obey and what we, we discern not to be at the right time, what we think and deem to be more important for that situation than follow you. When the person looking in the mirror says, I am king for the moment or queen for the moment, that I need to do this, 
Father, that we are thankful that you are merciful and know who we are and know that we are sinners, yet we have been redeemed and given hope. And so, Lord, I pray that if most of all that you will be glorified, we would be encouraged, we would be reminded of the witnesses that scream out to us in this book about who you are, your very nature, your very heart, the very merciful God that you are, that you call people who deserve something completely other and have given us this gift of life that is here now for us. We taste it, we feel it, we know it, we embrace it, we experience it, but Lord, we long for the day when it becomes complete in our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme of today from a liturgical perspective on a church calendar across the country is that it's Palm Sunday and Palm Sunday is rejoicing as we've been reading about the king coming and we've been seeing this motif or this theme of being a king. Jesus is king. Uh, They're having an issue with Jesus. Pilate we saw, we saw this concurrent uh, understanding of the of God's sovereignty in the world, and we see that we we talked of last week. We see people telling lies. Uh, we see politics. We see backdoor agreements. We see deceit. We see hypocrisy. We see weakness of the human flesh, and all of it is under God's control. And we see here that the king. At the, we saw last week the last statement of the Jews that they have no other king but Caesar. What a, a final statement to be remembered by. Shall we, I crucify your king. Notice, Pilate keeps on, as we, remember, as we talked about last week, Pilate did not like the Jews one inch. You're going to see this by what he writes. You're going to see this, how he rubs their face in every step along the way. Because he doesn't like them. But yet he's under political restrictions and under fear of losing his position. So he capitulates. And he gives the Jews what they want. They want Jesus dead. And only from an edict from Rome can someone be crucified. And why not find the best people for the job, the Romans? To carry out your will is to kill this renegade, this troublemaker, this one who will ruin our life named Jesus. Verse 16, so he delivered him over to be crucified and they took. We see all this action of human beings, this human agency, these people expressing their own power, their own strength, their own will in the life of Jesus. And so he went out bearing his own cross to the place. And, you know, if you go, you can read the stories. There's, you know, every Easter, every Palm Sunday, every Holy Thursday, Good Friday, you read the stories, you hear the stories of the crucifixion, the brutality of it. Uh, Jesus was flogged uh, just as an act of sympathy, uh, hopefully by, by Pilate to get the Jews to say, okay, the guy suffered somewhat, beat him up a little bit, maybe a little flesh, a little blood, a little brutality, maybe they'll feel sorry for him. That was the, 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 uh, the lowest or the uh, least of punishment that Jesus could receive. 
Now he's sentenced to die. Now they really mean business, and they take out the worst of all the beatings he could have. Uh, they take him to this place uh, where it's very public, where not very nice to walk up onto uh, the streets of Jerusalem and notice that these people are dying and hanging. Crucifixions were done all the time. Uh, our understanding of, of paintings and stories, even some being in churches and Sunday school literature, sometimes we have this painting of Jesus hanging a cross and these crosses are high and how he was nailed in his hands and a lot of archaeological studies have shown us that uh, that they were you know Jesus wasn't the only one crucified he was crucified with lots of people I mean in 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 that term meaning that lots of people were crucified in the history of Rome so it wasn't a unique act that was happening to Jesus and we see that Jesus comes between these two men and I and I say these words don't you know carry weight that's what happens Jesus gets between people I mean we have two complete different stories John doesn't go there but we have one man who looks at Jesus and says Jesus you did nothing wrong and he says to this man you know we are the ones who did we're the criminals we're the we're the the sinners we're the ones who did something wrong he deserves none of this we deserve every one of this jesus remind remember me when you get to your kingdom and then you get someone on the other side who says jesus it's your job to forgive it's your job to save so do it right that's what people think. It's Jesus. When we get there, it's, his, it's God. He's all loving. He's all forgiving. He knows I'm not that bad. He'll forgive me. It's his job to forgive. So we see these two completely different perspectives, which is out there, correct? We have those who see Jesus, and real, when we see Jesus, wow, he is unique. He is different. He is the Son of God. He is sinless. He died for me. He loved me. I am the sinner. I deserve this. Or... Eh, he's nice to have around. He's okay. It's great to have Jesus. But I earn my own salvation. I deserve it. You know, we see these two differences of philosophy of life. And that's what Jesus does. He, it's amazing. He, it, I mean, I think it's amazing. John says he gets, he's between these two men. And that's who he is. It's either, they either we either run to the light or we run away from the light. Again, notice the, the pregnancy, I hate to use those terms, but how robust these words are. There's so much in between these little phrases. And so on the way to, to, to the cross, actually Jesus is, in most cases they believe, even though some men did carry a cross, most of the time it was a single beam that he carried on his back. And he was so bloodied and so beaten as what they did to others, so that you know they were very weak and in shock. So we, they get to the cross beam, they carry the cross beam, There's the, they, they left the, the vertical beams in the ground all the time, and they would raise Jesus up by this one single beam. History shows that they were, they were hung upside down, they were crucified in an X. Uh, they, they sense that Jesus had that single beam, and when he was raised up, he wasn't up very high. It was just high enough, probably just enough, because if they had to hand him something to drink and they put it on a stick and the spear wasn't how long as we think it's going to be that long, 
it was it was it was a humiliating thing. It wanted they wanted you to smell and taste and see what this crucifixion did. So Jesus was no higher than a few feet from the reach of my hand. That close, completely naked. We see pictures of Jesus covered up, of course, out of not out of modesty and and not to offend people, but that's what people did. This is a, a complete act of humiliation. So we see these crucified people completely naked as we see that they're taking Jesus' clothes. He has nothing left. He has no one left. He has nothing left. This is the last act of humiliation. They are taking his clothes away from him. So he goes to this place, Calvary, Golgotha. They crucify him between these two other men. Pilate, there's a lot of stories here. There's lots of scenes going on. There's eight, nine, ten, depending on who you read and how you dissect all this, all this stuff going on that could be dissected and spent time on. But Pilate writes an inscription. When they were carrying the crossbeam, they, they would, they would, everybody in the world would know why they were being crucified. They would put an inscription, a placard on their neck while they were walking through town, their name and their their criminal act, why they were being crucified. And so Pilate, to rub his nose, to rub the nose in the, in the face of the Jews, he not only writes it, and here is this prophetic kind of action. We saw Caiaphas, who said that it is better for one man to die, not knowing what he is saying, thinking he's so smart, and God, you let, let Caiaphas speak, but it became prophetic. And now we see Pilate, prophetically saying that he is not only the king of the Jews, he's the king of the Jews for the Latin, for the Rome to read in Latin, for the Jews to read in Aramaic, and for the Gentiles to read, or everybody to read in Greek. Because it was, Greek was the, they call it the lingua franca, or the common language of the day. It was, it was the language of commerce. That's why it's called Corne Greek, as we study in Greek, in our Greek New Testament, it's Koine Greek, meaning common Greek. Everybody spoke this. It was the language of, of commerce. So when Pilate put that up there, he put it up so everybody that walked by could read this declaration of that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but he's not only the king of the Jews, he's king of everyone who could read that thing. That's an amazing thing. This is this, you see... Jesus wasn't a victim. He was very much in control. He is the king of all kings, as it says in the very beginning of the prologue. And they were mad because they felt that this was an indignant act against the, the Jews. They were angry. Nobody else says this. John points this out. John points this out because the theme of, of John is to point out a witness that Jesus is everything that he testified to be. And he says, what I have written, I have written, but by the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. Here is, here is Pilate speaking scripture. His, his name and his words to be inscripturated forever by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit. He didn't know he was being moved. He didn't know anything was going on. He just used his own will, his own hatred for the Jews to proclaim the gospel. Amazing. You see how this great act of God's sovereignty and this concurrency, this, this, it all works great together when we see it, but nobody's having fun. 
Except the Jews and the Gentiles and the Romans are having fun doing this because they're completing their act of hatred toward Jesus and their hatred for one another. Jesus is the victim. The ones who love Jesus are crying. They can't see anything but just complete sadness. And they're so caught up in it of the drama of this darkest day that ever faced humanity. This week we've heard a lot of darkness, have we not? I mean, we've heard about that in Germany with that flight going down. The mayor of that little town says this is the darkest day. We've heard other places. I can't remember what it was. I know Amanda Knox was talking about how when this all happened, it was the darkest day. In your life this week, it's been a very difficult time for for me and my family with my mom and bringing her into this home where she does not want to be, who is angry at all of us, who has been calling us names and everything all week because she's at a point, not because she wants to, it's because of this disease that she just does not know what's going on. So for us to go and leave and not talk to her for a few days is very dark for us. And dealing with all this, when we lose our loved ones, it's a dark day. But this is the darkest day for all of humanity. (laughs) The darkest. As Luke says, it looks like darkness is winning. And so we see now that when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took and divided his... uh, There were four soldiers... And they split up the plunder. They just took what they, it was part of the gig. You took the clothes. But notice here, so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's cast lots. And in Psalm 22, this messianic psalm that David writes, that he attributes this suffering of of his enemies. He uses this descriptive language of suffering, of dying of thirst, of of uh, anguish of his body, of his bones being crushed, all fulfilled in who Jesus is. And everything that he did and was going on at this moment, that's why it says that when David wrote this, David wasn't really physically going through this, even though that's how he felt. But this is fulfilling who Jesus is, the suffering servant, the one who ultimately dies on the cross to redeem us, to pay our penalty that we deserve. So it says, to fulfill. You see that there's a script written, and the players are playing it out, and Jesus is orchestrating it all, dying on a cross. Completely in control. I mean, it's amazing to the composure to think about what he's doing while he is still a human being and bleeding and in so much pain and thinking that it is to fulfill the scripture. So the soldiers did this. No one coerced them. The Holy Spirit didn't prompt them. They just acted as people, as they were. It was like when Job's family died, they died. When they, by who? By the hands of people. By the Assyrians, by the Babylonians. God doesn't go to these Assyrians and Babylonians and say, I think I'm just going to make them marauders. I think I'm going to make them hatred people who love to kill people. No, that's who they were. He just used them. He used their personality. He used their worldview. He used their mindset, their civilization, everything about them, just like he does today in our lives. That's what this is supposed to be about. I think an encouragement or understanding that Jesus' life and everybody around him looked like it was all falling apart 
But God had a decree and a plan. God has a plan for your life. This is the plan that God has for your life. We don't know who you're supposed to marry. We don't know what kind of job you're supposed to have. We don't know what kind of shoes you're going to wear tomorrow. But we do know the plan that God has for your life is this plan. You can take that to the bank. This decree, this revealed will of God, everyone knows. Everything else, I don't know. We have to play it out and see what doors God opens up for us. There's no tea leaves to read. There's no burning bush to go to. So when people are discerning and discovering the will of God, I need to be in the perfect will of God. I don't know if you can always, you know, I mean, this is the perfect will of God for your life. This is the perfect will of God for your life and my life. Everything else, I can't tell you. I can tell you from scripture that there are guidelines of who you do marry and why you do marry and how you're supposed to be parents and how you're supposed to be managing your money and how you should be an employer and how you should run your home and how the church should run. But this is the plan that God has for your life. We tell people, oh, God has a perfect plan for your life. And then all of a sudden they become Christians and somebody just gives them a train wreck. Has that ever happened to you? I told you this before. I led people to the Lord. I'm saying, Lord, I think you're doing a terrible job. Their lives are falling apart. They're hated. They're, they're, they've lost their jobs. Their families died. This isn't a nice way of nurturing people. These seedlings need to be nurtured here, Lord. Again, my will. I want it. I think he's doing a bad job sometimes. So, but standing by the cross of Jesus, verse 25, we see these people who are in shock. These four women. Three of them are Marys. One of them may be Salome, who is the sister of, of Mary, who may be John and, and, and James, the son of Zebedee, who may be relatives of Jesus. That's all speculation, but it may very well be. And they're there. And who else is there but John? John's there. Has to be, right? John has to be there. He wrote this, and he also is mentioned here. And when Jesus sees his mother, the disciple whom he loved standing near her, he, he goes to that term we looked at, right, in chapter 2. Remember, this is, a book of, this is the book of glory. The first 12 chapters was the book of signs. And the book of signs, one of the first signs was changing the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And remember how Jesus addresses Mary when Mary says, listen, Jesus, you've got to do something. They're out of, well, they're out of wine. You've got to do something. And what does Jesus say? Woman. Right? He says, woman. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Pling, the hour's come. Notice how he... And this is why I think John gives us this perspective. John tells us the hour's here, woman. But notice now, at a wedding, what do you celebrate? You celebrate, supposed to celebrate, <laughs> you're supposed to celebrate a brand, brand new family, a new family, the community used to gather, get together and get invited to the weddings. Why? Because we have a new family that's going to raise children and going to be part of this family and part of our community, and we're going to be together. That's why we rejoice. And what is God doing here? What is Jesus doing here? He's redefining family. Jesus does that all the time, doesn't he? Blessed are you, who, the mother who bore you. And what does Jesus say? No, 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 no. He says, blessed are those who obey the Father and do the will of the Father. For who are they? They are my brothers and my sisters. And then Jesus, and it says, 
oh, your mother and your brother and sisters are outside. And he goes, wait a minute, who are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters? What? These are the people that follow, Christ, that follow the Lord, that obey the Father, that do the, want to do the Father's will. He defines for us community. He redefines for us family. Now, he doesn't tell us to disregard our family, but he gives us a greater family now to belong to. And he's doing this here. We see at a wedding where he tells her to be a woman. Now he says to her, woman, this is really something to rejoice. This is your new family. John, this is your mother. Jesus, Mary, this is your son. This is a whole new relationship. And he does it on the cross. Why? To, he was a man under the law. And what does the commandment teach? Honor your father. Honor your mother. We see Jesus honoring his heavenly father by taking care of his earthly mother on the cross. On the cross! Bleeding, dying, being deserted. All of his charms are gone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels that weight of sin and filth of our will on his life. And yet he concerned about the perfect obedience, the covenant of works that was with Adam, that Adam, you got to work, and when you work, you'll get this, and Adam failed. Then it becomes a covenant of grace, because then God makes the means, and then he points to a Savior that is going to come. So the covenant of works is never complete until Jesus comes, and then Jesus completes the final act of work. He obeys. That's why he can say here, what? It's finished. What's finished? The covenant of works. I've completed everything, even to obeying his father on the cross by taking care of Mary. Amazing. So we see the themes. I think we see themes of the Gospel of John in this last week of Jesus' life, because then he says... Um, after this, verse 28, after this, Jesus knowing, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill scripture. Now, was Jesus really thirsty? He could have been very thirsty. I mean, he had a difficult evening in the morning. I'm sure he didn't have breakfast. I'm sure he was very famished. To show his humanity, he could have, I mean, expressed this in saying, I thirst. He says, yeah, Jesus even was thirsty at that hour, at that time. But he said it to fulfill scripture. Why? Because in Psalm 22, in Psalm 69, we have to see that this sour wine, this vinegar, had to be presented to the suffering person in the psalm to fulfill all scripture. So Jesus is being obedient. Jesus is mindful of all the scriptures, is mindful of all how this plays out, so that he tells everybody, as Bob said this morning, that this has been foretold for thousands of years, that Jesus is playing out the script and dying on a cross and still saying, to fulfill scripture, he says, I thirst. Now they don't give him this wine out of mercy. The people along the way gave Jesus, wanted to give Jesus something to drink to sedate him. These guys just wanted to be more playful with a dying man. So they give him vinegar. Imagine what you're, I mean, do, you know, I'm an Italian. We eat lots of vinegar. When you have chapped lips, what does vinegar feel like on your lips? When you got a cut, what does it feel like? Imagine what Jesus 
his, in, what he's like in his mouth and in his gut, in his di- digestive tract, when they, he puts that vinegar there, was that pleasurable? Was that to make him, you really think that that quenched his thirst? Like he needed it? No, it was to fulfill all of scripture. It is finished. And notice here, folks, as I've been saying, that these phrases mean something. He says here, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The word isn't really given up. He handed it over. Why? Because he said, in this gospel, nobody takes my life. I give it up. I hand it over. But notice, Judas handed Jesus over to who? To Caiaphas. Caiaphas handed Jesus over to Pilate. Pilate handed people over to the people to be crucified. But none of them were in control because it says here, Jesus handed his life over to the Father. We see that Jesus is in control even of his own death. Which is amazing. All the details that this week beholds for us is phenomenal. All these last hours in this dark, dark moment of the life of these people, and they're missing the point. They're not getting it all. They didn't digest all of this. He gave his life. Here we see that Jesus is decree of the Father, as I've prayed before, that God the Father planned all this, Jesus is accomplishing all this, and the Holy Spirit is now applying it to our life and your life and to the lights of the saints whence they understand after the resurrection and the exaltation and the ascension of Jesus that, wow, this is what he talked about. So since it was the day of preparation, verse 31, the day of preparation, he's talking a lot about the day of preparation because it's the Passover. And the, pa- and the Sabbath day of the Passover was an extremely high Sabbath, which started when? At Friday at sundown. So there's a lot of preparation. There's a lot of stuff going on. The Jews didn't want Jesus. They didn't want people hanging. It was their day. They didn't want this, this cursed people being hanging around. They didn't want this crucifixion to be any more longer than it was. So they wanted to have Jesus taken off the cross like everybody else. So it was the day of the preparation and that the bodies would not remain on the cross. How wonderfully religious these men are. To keep the Sabbath. No, not only a Sabbath, but the high Sabbath, because it's Passover. And we've got to make sure that we do everything that the law makes us and wants us to do so that we are law keepers. The hypocrisy here. For that Sabbath was a high day, and the Jews asked Pilate to break the legs. And what did they do? They got a mallet, and they broke the legs of the men. They go there and just break their legs. Because on the cross was this this little seat that they would push themselves up to breathe. And when they got weak, they'd push themselves up. And it wasn't out of mercy. It was to prolong. It was to prolong the suffering. It wasn't out of, oh, I need to, let's give these guys something to push on so they got a little relief. None of this was about relief whatsoever. So break their legs, and they suffocate. So they die. But Jesus is already dead. Why? Because he's the Passover lamb. And what does it say in Exodus and Numbers? That it has to be a perfect sacrifice. Nothing needs to be broken. Nothing, there's no blemish, nothing. It cannot be broken. Bones or bones cannot be broken. And so Jesus is already dead because he is the Paschal Lamb. He is the Passover Lamb. 
Paul writes to us in Corinthians. He says, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He is the one. That's why he keeps on saying over and over again. And that's when you see when they hand, I think, when they, when they say that they use this, they um, uh, handed Jesus that wine, they put a sponge and they put it on a hyssop branch. What's a hyssop branch? You remember the word hyssop from anywhere? From the day of the Passover, the original Passover, when they took a, a branch of hyssop and covered the, the, the doorposts of their home so that the angel of death would pass over their house. Wow, what a coincidence. How lucky that word just came up there. It's all about pointing to Jesus and who he is. And the, the symbolism here just drips of Jesus being the ultimate sacrifice that fulfills all the promises of everything and everyone said in the Old Testament. All of it. All of the scripture, all of the promises, all of the prophecies, all the symbolism, all of the, the flannel graphs that we use in Sunday school class. Everything. It's all about Jesus. Pointing who Jesus. What does Paul write? And all of the promises are what? Yes and amen in Jesus. That's what, that's what John is trying to be a witness and saying, you see, folks, he's in control of all of this, even down to the last sentence. And when they came to Jesus, they saw his body was already dead, but one of them pierced his side with a spear, and at once out came blood and water. Well, boy, you want to read stories about this. Doctors, everybody's trying to come up with, what are they talking about? Well, he, pier he pierced this sack in his chest, and he had all this... All this water being, because of Jesus' suffering, he had all this stuff going on. So they're missing the point because they're trying to figure out medically what happened here. When it's nothing to do about medically, it's about what it portrays. One thing is what happens. John saw this. Notice what John says. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spirit and water, blood and water came out. He goes, he who saw this bore witness, meaning that he died. He was dead. John is writing at a time when there's heresy going on within the church, that's why he writes 1 John, the beginning of Gnosticism, the beginning of the heresy of teaching that Jesus really didn't die, he appeared to die. He really wasn't God, but he appeared. They're called docetists. They're people who saying that Jesus looked like he had a body, but God can't have a body, so it wasn't a real body. Or Jesus didn't really die, he just swooned. And when he got into the temp, when he got into the, to the tomb, the cool weather just woke him up, and he moved the stone and left. And so John is saying, I saw it. Water and blood came out of him. He's dead. He was dead. But beside that, we have to read what John meant by this. So turn with me to 1 John. Remember, you go back to 1 John to get some sort of interpretation sometime. Notice the... the Blood, we know what blood means, right? We've been talking about the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Christ, the blood that takes away the sins of the world. This is the Lamb of God who takes away. John said this at his baptism. Remember the water baptism of Jesus? Jesus was baptized. Did he need to be baptized to fulfill righteousness? He did. Then what happened? We see water at the, at the, at the wedding, right? And what, were the, what was the water in? It were, they, were in clay, they, were not, they were in stone pots because they were water for purification. And Jesus says, you don't have any more need for these things. I'm the one who's going to purify you. I'm better than any water purification you could ever think of. And then in chapter 7 of John, he talks about the water and the Holy Spirit. And we see this, common, this water and blood uh, 
theme going all through the Gospel of John. And now we see John in chapter 5 of 1 John. Verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies. Here we are talking about a witness again. The Spirit is truth. For there are three that witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and all these three agree. If we, re if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he was born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe that God, that believe God has made him a liar because he does, has not believed in the testimony that God has, been, has born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. So these themes of, of the water, of purification, of uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, I'm thirsty. Well, Jesus is now the, he's the one who's going to quench everybody's thirst for God. He is the water that is living forever. And from you shall, what does he say, the, the, the springs of water shall fall for, come forth, shoot forth. It's all about the work of the Holy Spirit. It's all about the purification of uncleanliness, of ungodliness. It's the blood as we eat and drink. It's the blood of the covenant. With the baptism, we're baptized with water. In communion, we celebrate the blood shed by Christ. His body broken. All of this is symbolic for us and sacraments that we run to. The initiation into the family of God is baptism. The ongoing rededication of our life to these elements is in communion. That's why these sacraments are guarded. That's why the, when we went back before, foot washing has nothing to do with covenants. But the baptism of water and the, the death of Christ is this new covenant, he says, in my blood. And John, and then he goes to Nicodemus right at night, and he says to Nicodemus, he goes, Nicodemus, unless you're born again of the water, unless you're born again, he says, you have no way with me. You don't even know what you're talking about. So you see how this new life and this Holy Spirit and this purification, that's what coming out of Jesus' side, the symbolism of this, of who he is. He is the rock that was struck and they drank from. You see, all the symbols of the Old Testament are coming forth in this spear. Now, who told this guy to spear Jesus? Nobody. But God used it for our encouragement, for us to be strengthened in our faith. And finally, um, again, in verse 36 and 37, for the scripture may not be fulfilled that none of his bones were broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him and who they pierced. And just going back to Zechariah 12 and Zechariah 13, they're talking about someday everyone's going to see Jesus. Someday they're going to look upon Jesus. So right now they're talking about in Zechariah that God's heart was pierced because uh, Israel just disobeyed God so much. But when it talks about uh, in chapter 13, he talks in 12 and 13, he talks about the, the shepherd being struck and the, the sheep scattering. He's talking about that there. You read that and you go there and you see that, th that there's going to come a day when the Lord is going to return and those who struck him are going to see him. And those whom you pierced. 
And then we see, we see these other players in closing here. This, notice how all this is going on. We didn't know we had these secret admirers. It looks like Nicodemus came. Look at Nicodemus, got it. John, Joseph of Arimathea, notice he says, who was a disciple, if you read Mark and Matthew and Luke, we'll see that um, John, Joseph of Arimathea was a, a part of the Sanhedrin. He was part of the group that turned Jesus over, but it says in Luke that he dissented, but he did everything quietly because this man's life was on the line. His politics was on the line. His way of life was on the line. So he secretly did this stuff. But after he sees, I think, after Jesus and everything that happens, notice what kind of death they give Jesus. A kingly death. A kingly burial. Expensive perfumes. Only 75 pounds. 75 pounds! That's a lot of money. And the servants of Joseph and the servants of Nicodemus all gather together and anoint Jesus like a king in a garden graveside for kings. Kings were only planted, planted, buried in, in, uh, in graveside um, uh, tombs in gardens, and no one had ever been in this tomb before. which is special. So they took his body and bound it in linens, and it was an expensive, it was an expensive fit for royalty. Now in the place where he was crucified was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, and no one had yet been laid. So, because it was the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, that's where they buried Jesus. It was it had all these circumstantial evidence, all these evidence, all these point, things pointing that it just happened to be here and it happened to be there and the soldiers happened to do this and Pilate happened to do that and Caiaphas happened to do this. There's no such thing as luck. It's all the divine decree of God. And, it's, and if he did that for Jesus there, he says, if Jesus didn't spare us, how much does he love us? He gave his son for us. So what does he think about us? How is he going to, what does this mean for our life? This means that God is in control of every piece of our life, regardless of what we see going on. Even he knows, which is mind-blowing, and I've said this I know before, he even knows how and when we're going to sin. He, a part of his decree, as part of his concurrence, is that he knows how and when we're going to sin, which is absolutely mind-boggling. And our sin, and how we sin, and who we hurt when we sin, and to the gravity of the sin we perform is all under his control. Which is amazing grace. And can it be, how can it be that God, my God, should die for me? How, it's amazing, is it not? So this is what I think all of this is, I mean, you can see there's tons of stuff in here that we could go back through and look at all the scripture verses and go back through all the Old Testaments and see how they all go together and read them together and so you can make your own notes. But this, this is important stuff to see how John is writing uniquely. He's not concerned about all the details about the crucifixion. He's giving us a bigger picture of how this crucifixion and how Jesus' death all fit his testimony. Why? So that you and I may believe. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you, as always, 
for your word. We're thankful, Father, that you have created this word and presented it to us in such a way and superintended over it and have kept it for us as we can see that our eyes become more and more open to the truth and we see how wonderfully connected this book is. It's just not a chance book. It's not a book of just someone's opinion. We see how over the years, how all this intricately ties together this biblical story of creation and the fall and redemption and consummation. We thank you for that story that's in one cover to the other cover. And at the end, Lord, we are told that the rest of the story is told of the victorious Christ that we will see. We thank you, Lord, for living for us now. We thank you for dying for us then. We thank you, Lord, for giving us a king that rules over our life, rules over our church. We understand, Lord, that it is not in, it's not perfect. It's imperfect. It's not the kingdom that's not. We are not perfect. And yet, Lord, you have shown us that your kingdom has come, that the kingdom of God is here. We do not need to wait for its presence. You are here. You are reigning, Lord, now. We thank you for that. We thank you for coming into our lives. We pray that the reign that we desire to be under truly captivates our souls so that our lives then resemble the cry that we say, King Jesus, come. Thank you for reigning. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being the king of my life. Lord, I pray that that would be our cry today and every day until you come and take us. And then we know, Lord God, that there'll be a day when your kingdom will be perfectly set up. But we don't have to wait for a day for it to come. There is no time frame. It is happening now. The king has come and your kingdom is here. Thank you for allowing us to see it and participate in it. And I pray, Lord God, that you help us to reflect that we are citizens of that kingdom more than any other kingdom on earth. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 296, 